When the going gets tough, where does your heart get going? When the pressure of life is on, where does your mind go? I have uh, been a little obsessed and fascinated with the idea of mental toughness for the last couple of years. I don't know, for some reason, maybe, you know, there's some difficulty in our world around us. But uh, mental toughness is what a lot of like people in the blogosphere space or people writing have chosen to talk about um, athletes and Navy SEALs and people who go through extreme circumstances and are able to endure and come out on the other side of it. And I won't make you raise your hand, but how many of us would like to grow in our toughness? I would like to be a much tougher person than I actually am. Um, there's two guys that are on the YouTubes and the internets and writing the books and all that cool stuff that are former Navy SEALs and they have built their platform and their whole thing is basically built on this idea of helping people build toughness. Um, one of them, Jocko Wilnick, he's like, I go to bed at like 10.30 and I wake up at 4.30 to exercise. I don't do that. And I'm sure you guys all can tell, right? That's not something that Andrew does. Um, I wish I was that cool and that tough and be like, yeah, I can take five hours of sleep. I'm going to hit, you know, lift, bench press, all these pounds. That's not me. Um, I would like to be a mentally tough person, though. And oftentimes, those who are mentally tough, they can deal with challenging situations because the internal stories that come up when the pressure is on. And I wonder, what do you say to yourself when you are in that struggle, when you are in the middle of life going sideways? What do you say to yourself? We have some toxic stories that we start to replay and upload. Uh, many of those is sometimes we're playing the blame game. We're like, who did this? Why? Why is there a flat tire on my car? Who did this? Who should have taken it? OK, it's the guy in the mirror. Like that's, you know, I'm blaming myself. Or maybe there's the toxic story of this always happens to me. This is what happens when you try. This is what happens. You know, if we just stayed home and watched Netflix, none of this would have happened. I would be safe in my comforter and that would be great. But that's not a mentally tough story. And I wonder, what are the stories that we tell ourselves when we encounter these moments where we need toughness? Where does our heart go? And I have to hope that there's opportunity for some better places for us to go than the current stories that we go to. I know that for me, I want to upload the story where I'm just like, I wish I was Dorothy. I could just click the red heels and be like, no place like home, no place like home, no place like home. And the problem goes away. But it doesn't. We have to deal with it. Well, here we are in the book of James, and we are in chapter 5. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open up to James chapter 5. We'll start with verse 1. But before we get there, um, I want to talk about James chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 real quick, because the book of James is a sandwich. I love sandwiches. I'm going hiking quite a bit this summer because the weather is nice, and when I'm hiking, I will often make myself a sandwich. And when I make myself a sandwich, I start with a piece of bread, because I'm not gluten-free. So I have bread that I put down and then I grab another piece of bread and I put all the good stuff on top of that and I put it between the two pieces of bread so there's a frame 
around my sandwich with those pieces of bread. Well, James does the same thing with ideas in his letter to the churches. He's going to start with an idea, and we're going to circle back to it for that other piece of bread. So um, open up to James chapter 1. If you want to keep your finger over by chapter 5, we start with James. Duh. We've been talking about James for a long time. But actually, in the Greek and in the Hebrew, his name is not James. Feel free to gasp. Turn to your neighbor. <gasps> what? See, there's some dumb church history reasons why we call him James. But actually, his name is Jacob. And this letter is written from Jacob, the father of the tribes of Israel. If you look in the Old Testament, um, the father of the tribes of Israel to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And when he writes that, he is uploading a story from the Old Testament that they would have had in their minds. It was one of the darkest moments in the whole story of God's people. In 586 BC, the Babylonian army came against Jerusalem and they won. They kicked open the doors and they took the people captive and they took Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego off to Babylon. And that's where we get some famous stories about fiery furnaces and about lion's dens and these things that we talk about in Sunday school. And then VeggieTales decided it had to be a chocolate bunny factory for some reason. But God's people in that moment, in the dispersion, God's people had their back against the wall. And they didn't see a way out. They didn't see the future of what God was doing. And James is uploading that story, that moment, to this moment in time when he's writing to Christians that are experiencing trials. And then he says, count it all joy. When your back is against the wall, in that moment, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, I really appreciate the fact that he really just left that wide open with trials of various kinds. Now, trials is kind of a Bible-y word, so go ahead, turn to your neighbor, and in your best kind of profound Bible scholar voice, say the word trial. Ready? One, two, three. Trials. Trials. Oh, you guys aren't all doing it. I'm going to make you do one more, okay? Here we go. One more. You got to wake up a little bit. Sunday morning. Now you're going to say tribulation. Okay, tribulation, because that's the other way that word gets translated. One, two, three, tribulation. Now, when I was a high schooler, I would read these books called like the Left Behind series, and I would argue with my friends about the great tribulation, because we were really scared of this thing that was going to happen at the book of Revelation in the end of the world where there's the great tribulation. We had to argue about whether Jesus comes back before or after the tribulation. Well, guess what? The Greek word that we're translating there with trials and tribulations, it just means difficulties. How many of you experienced difficulties this week? Anybody? This week? Okay, if your hand didn't go up, I got some news for you. Next week, you're, it's probably going to get real. Like You're probably going to have some difficulties because we do. We encounter trials of various kinds. We encounter trials that are very big. We encounter trials that are very small. We encounter trials in the financial world. We hope that our bank accounts do well, our retirement accounts do well. You can hit trials there. We hit trials when we go to work, and there's that coworker that sits in the cubicle next to you, 
Mine's on vacation. Ben is not here today. No, but uh, like, no, there's, there's those people. You got trials of various kinds. You got trials at home. We've got emotional wounds. Some of us have wrestled with addictions and anxiety and these scripts that were handed to us. Guys, that's trials. Welcome to Dallas Church. We're going to have an encouraging message. But that's the real world. And so James is writing to this church in the middle of this, and he's encouraging them about where they should go in the middle of trials. Now, it's going to take us about a couple minutes to get there, so bear with me on this next section. You ready? This is not a non sequitur, I promise. James chapter 5, verse 1. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now you can take a deep breath to recover from that. That's pretty intense. And James lays into that chapter where he's really calling out these unrighteous rich people. And this is after he has just said in the previous chapters, we have to be really careful with what we say. He's like, be very careful with your words. And by the way, rich people. Like he unloads on them. And what he's doing in this situation is he's stepping into the shoes of, he is putting on the hat of a biblical prophet. Prophets in the Bible were not necessarily people who would tell the future and be like, you know, next week, make sure you don't get into the black car that's going down the highway. That's not how prophets worked. Prophets would tell truth to power. They would call it like they saw it. And so James is writing to this church, which is largely populated by people who were uh, farmers and day laborers in the fields of these wealthy landowners. So he's writing to call out these rich people that aren't necessarily in the room. And what he's calling them out on, he's saying God sees the injustice. God sees what is going on. And I'm a little challenged by this paragraph right here because I don't know if you can find two words that describe the values of American culture better than luxury and self-indulgence. Like, I'm, I'm a little convicted by that. I, I have to take a minute and go, Whoo, what is God saying to me in the middle of this? And he's not saying that to have wealth or to have stuff is bad, therefore all of us, this is your wonderful application from Dallas Church. We're just going to go home, have a massive amount of garage sales, and sell everything that we own. No, it's more nuanced than that. But he's saying these people have tried to use their wealth and their economic stability to insulate themselves, to keep themselves safe. But ultimately, that can't be the source of your value. Ultimately, that can't be the source of your security because, as we all know, when it comes to economics, things go up, they go down. Things can change. They move all over the place. And that is a really sad place 
to build your life. And so I've, I want to think about this, and I want to I sidestep the temptation to think, well, you know who's really rich, right? The movie stars and the people that you know, are on Instagram showing off their wonderful houses that they have remade, and there's like the fourth mansion that they've got. Well, no. See, I have this thing at my house called a chest freezer. And this is the level of adulting that I'm at right now, and I'm really proud of myself for it. I went and bought a chest freezer, and then I went and took food that I put in that chest freezer that I will not eat today. Because I'm going to put it in my chest freezer, save it for later. That puts me in the very tippy-top percent of humans on this planet. Because I have created some stability for myself with my wealth. But for me to go to that place and say, well, I'm going to be safe no matter what because I have my chest freezer. Like, guy, guys, God is so much better than that. And there's a better place for us to go to. And, and he's just... James is really honest and he lays it in. He talks about how they have laid up treasures in the last days. These people are all about hoarding the resources, piling it all up, and ultimately what does it come to? I have played games of Monopoly before with my friends where I was saving up to make the killer move. I was going to win the game. One stroke. It was also in Settlers of Catan, I've done this, where I get all my sheep and my wood and my lumber, and I'm like saving it all up. And when it comes to my turn, I'm going to spend it all. I'm going to build the empire. I'm going to win the game. And all of the three other people at the kitchen table will go, Andrew, you are so great. Like that is what's going to happen. But then someone else wins on their turn. And you know what I do with my resources, my monopoly money, all the stuff that I've saved up? What good is it to me? It's not any good. If I go to the restaurant afterwards with my friends that we were just playing the board games with, and I say, don't worry, guys, I got the check. I saved up like $20,000 in Monopoly. I'm going to pick up this. It doesn't matter. There's a perspective shift. And James is calling us to think bigger than just a question of luxury and self-indulgence, bigger than just what we see in the world around us. And he also says that God sees all the injustice. And I'm not going to paint with just one picture, one brush that says that all of us in this room are the rich and, you know, those luxury self-indulgent. Some of us have had injustice done to us. Some of us are in tough situations. And God sees it all. God sees what's going on. It says that the wages that these guys have kept back, the injustice that they're not, they're not doing justice to the people around them, it is like evidence. It cries out to God. Just like in the Old Testament, the very first murder, when Cain killed Abel, Abel's blood, it says, cried out to God. God saw the injustice. When the people of Israel were slaves in Egypt, they cried out to God, and God saw the injustice. And so I think this section, it encourages us to take a minute to trust God with ultimate justice. It causes us to talk about having a wallet of integrity. It encourages us to not just hoard up resources for ourselves, but to use them for the benefit of others, not to just find our sense of self in a number on a bank account, but rather to trust in God. 
So let's go to verse 7. Here we go. He says, therefore, all right, because of this, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now, just real easy way to get good at reading the Bible is to look for the repeated words. And how often did he say patient in that text? Every other word, right? Every other sentence. He's saying patience, steadfastness, that idea of a farmer. Now, patience is hard. We used to, as a culture, we used to give little girls the name patience. We don't do that anymore. There's not very many people that have named like their children patience. You cannot build a business in America with the slogan and the mission statement, we will help everyone grow in patience. Like, no, they're going to go to the other thing down the street. We are a buy with one click sort of a culture. We are a culture that wants to put our meals in the microwave. And we have this story in America. We think that if something is wrong, if something is broken, if I am suffering, if it is hard, all I need to do is fix it. I need to change something. I need to do something. Now, that works a lot of the time. Like, if your car has the check engine light on, yes, change it. Do something about that situation. If there's a leak in the faucet in your sink, like, change it. But here's what happens in our world is that there are some things that are out of our control. There are things like chronic illnesses. There are things like acts of God. There's weather patterns. We cannot, like, I have no control over some of these things. When my daughter was born last year, I had tried to do my very best job to get everything prepared. We had like bought all the car seat, we had all the safety and the diapers and everything. We read all the books and all the manuals. And then two weeks, my daughter's two weeks old, and we had the crazy ice storm where like power went out, trees are falling down. And so no joke, I've been a dad for two weeks. We only brought her home from the hospital like 10 days ago. And I am in the living room with my little girl who's about that big. And I'm just like huddled up with a blanket, like trying to keep her warm because it's out of my control. When Dr. Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York and um, has done lots of counseling with people, he says, when Americans encounter seasons of struggle and suffering, about 50% of the distress that we experience comes just from the shock of the fact that we are experiencing suffering. And about another 50% of the distress that we experience comes from the actual suffering that we're going through. Because so often, there's this shock and surprise that, like, what do you mean, God? Something bad happened to me? And sometimes, I think the Bible offers a better perspective than that. It invites us to be patient. And he goes to that imagery of a farmer. I think that is so profound because farmers are patient, but they are not apathetic. Farmers 
have to wait for the results. But they don't just sit back, you know, and twiddle their thumbs, sit there with a, you know, relaxing in an outdoor chair. No, they're watering, they're weeding, and that is the extent of the farming amount that I know that farmers need to do. But, but for reals, like, here's, here's, let's bring it back to Andrew's life. I'm trying to, like, make my lawn grow green and happy and nice. This is what the farming that I do, okay? And I put the weed and feed on it, I did the overseeding, and now I'm trying to water it and I have to wait to the next season when I can put more weed and feed and more overseeding. There you go, that's my farming analogy for the... But there's a season to it and we get to work in the season. I'm a big believer in blooming where we're planted. And I know people, I talk to um, people my age, people older than me, people who think, well, if I can just hit the next level in my job, if I can just change this thing, if I can just get that car, if I can get that job, if I can get that degree, if I can change this about my scenario, then everything will fall into place, it'll fix all my problems. Does it? No. Because you know who goes with you to all of those scenarios? You. Me, that's how it works. And so often, learning to be patient and content is learning to be patient and content with who I am and where God has placed me right now. And so I, I would say, like, if you need to change jobs, do it. If you need a better car, do it. Like, go do those things, but don't expect that that will ultimately fix what's going on. Sometimes we're just patient and growing in a season. I already talked about that I had uh, my, my, we had our daughter last year, and there was a season of about eight weeks where she needed to be fed every two hours. So my phone had a recurring um, timer on it that I never ended that timer. I just hit reset every two hours. And my shift was the 8 p.m. to 3 a.m. shift because uh, I have some insomnia sleep stuff. So we're like, well, Andrew's gonna stay up all night with the baby. So uh, that was a good plan. But so the baby, she, she's gotta get fed every two hours. And that season, I'm so glad that it's over. Because you know what I was doing at 3 a.m. last night? I was sleeping and it was glorious. But at the same time, that was kind of a beautiful season because I would spend hours holding my little girl and she was only like, you know, that big, and she's cute and adorable, and now she's getting bigger, and I tried to get a baby that doesn't grow up, but I can't change that. And that's a beautiful season, and you move through seasons. There was a season in my leadership where I'm going to school to be a pastor, and I was a youth pastor at this little church, and our building was so old that the carpet was so run down that if I ran a vacuum cleaner over it, it would just like disintegrate the whole thing. So in order to clean the preschool classrooms, I had a shop vac that I would go in and clean the whole classroom just walking around with a shop vac. Now, I'm glad that the scope of my pastoral ministry has expanded since then. But I wouldn't trade that season because in the middle of that, what I said is, this is class time. So I put in my earphones, I put on my podcast, and I started to learn Bible nerd facts that I can now share with you from a stage. Like I was, I'm gonna use this season. And I don't know what it is for you. I don't know what classroom you're vacuuming with a shop vac, but maybe God's working in the middle of all of this. 
Maybe God has you in this season for a reason. Because James is going to encourage this church. He says, he ties it back to the character of God. He doesn't say, be patient, because you got to be patient. He ties it back to how you've seen the purpose of the Lord. That the Lord is compassionate and he is merciful. God's heart for us is good. How many things have you asked God for that he didn't give you? And what would your life look like if he had given you everything you asked for? Think about that for a minute. Like, oftentimes it is God's grace and his compassion that is sometimes what keeps us in these waiting seasons. Because he's growing something in the middle of us. And I think we do. We need to be tied back to what God is doing there. When I was, um, I was really little, I was probably like four years old, my dad had this habit of when he would come home on Friday nights, it was game time for him and me. Like we would let mom go and have girls night, go do her thing, and like Friday nights was our time. And one Friday night he comes home and he's like, I gotta go back to the office. And I'm like four years old, so I can understand and we can have a completely nuanced, mature decision, discussion about the fact that he's going back to the office. No, I was so upset. I was throwing a fit. I was freaking out. And he's like, Andrew, I'm going to be back in 44 minutes. And he goes and he hops in his car. He goes to the office. And so I planted myself in front of the clock on the stove. And I just said over and over again, 44 minutes, 44 minutes. 44 minutes. Like, I can't tell time. I'm four. <laughs> but I repeated that because I trusted my dad. So then, the next week, he comes home and we're going to do our little routine. And I'm like, Dad, is it time for 44 minutes? And from then on, that's what it was called. We were like, it's Friday. It's time for 44 minutes. Because I trusted my dad and his heart and the fact that he was going to come through for me. And I think we can trust God and his heart even in the rough situations, even in the tough scenarios. Let's skip down to verse 13. We're going to talk about prayer. So patience, right? We're going to have wallets of integrity. We're going to be patient, trusting in God's heart. And then we're going to be prayerful. Verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. I think this verse is saying we're supposed to express all of life is prayer. God is not surprised. Sometimes we approach church with this kind of happy-go-lucky, you know, all the worship songs are upbeat and all the sermon series about like five ways to have a better whatever. But there's space in God's understanding of both the mountaintops where it's nice and the valleys where it's a struggle. Verse 14, it says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, this is a really unique verse because it is the only time in the entire New Testament we're going to talk about elders praying for someone and anointing them with oil. It only shows up in James. We don't get any description in the book of Acts. We don't get anything in Paul or Timothy or anything else where he's talking about this. This is a unique, um, unique moment. And I got to tell you, I have seen this play out. I have been with a group of elders 
who have gone to pray for someone, and they actually make these things that are like these little kits for pastors that have some oil. I'm not even kidding right now. Like, this is just real. Like, there's a kit where you have the oil and the communion, and you take it to the person that you're going to go visit because then they can have communion and you can anoint them with oil, which simply means to pour it on them. And this is, this is a tricky one. This is the one when Ben found out I was preaching on this one. He was like, hey, good luck, kid. Like, here you go. Because there's been some weird stuff done with this. Sometimes people think, well, maybe there's like magic in the oil. Like if we get the oil right, then that will, you know, heal the person. Well, I don't think that's the case. Actually, in the ancient times in their day, if you read the story of the Good Samaritan, when the Samaritan picks up the man who's been beaten up, he takes the wounds and he puts oil on them. And so it's almost like, we'll get the elders to pray for you, but like use good medicine, like use Neosporin. You know, get, go to the doctor. These are really good things. But there's also something powerful about calling on the spiritual leaders of a community. And like I said, I have been present in hospital rooms. I have been present in living rooms where we have done this, where elders have gathered together to pray for someone. Actually, last year, there was an elders meeting we had where you walked in and the agenda item had this one little part that said, pray for Andrew. Because I had to go to the elders and say, guys, I am struggling. I'm, I'm tired, I'm afraid, I'm, I'm not burnt out, but I'm just not in a healthy place, and I need you to pray for me. And they did. They gathered around me, they prayed for me, and that was a little humbling. You know, I walked in pretty nervous, because I would much rather, like, can we put the little agenda item that says, like, how can we pray for Dallas Church and strategically reach Dallas for Jesus? But instead, I had to go, I'm weak, and I need help. And then from that meeting on, one of the elders said, Andrew, we're going to go for a walk once a week. We're going to encourage you. We're going to pour into you. And I think that's the picture of Christian community. That prayer needs to happen, not just alone and solo, but tied to, supported by strong spiritual leaders. Verse 15, it says, And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And I have seen this play out in people's lives. There is a connection between the spiritual and the physical. I know people where when they have dealt with emotional trauma in the past, all of a sudden some of the foods they were allergic to, they're not allergic anymore. It's almost like there's something going on there. Now, I've also seen people go really crazy with this, right? Where they're like, oh, you got a cold. What'd you do? What'd you do? Where's the sin? So we don't want to be the sin police, but we want to be healed and pursue truth in prayer. Verse 16, he says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Rick Warren said it this way. He said, if you want to be forgiven for your sins, confess them to Jesus. If you want to be healed, confess them to someone else. And we don't have a good tradition of interacting with each other as humans and confessing our sin, especially in kind of Protestant evangelical church cultures, because we're trying so hard to not be like the Catholic confession, like, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. Like, we're trying so hard not to do that. 
that sometimes I think we leave some stuff on the table where there's some healing available to us if we would be open and honest with good, strong, mature people of faith. Um, One of the cool things that has happened in Dallas Church in the last uh, probably more than a year, but what has happened is that there are so many people who are getting freedom and recovery from pornography addictions as they are being honest and open and in recovery groups that we've been leading. And that's, I think that's, that's Jesus in the real world, giving real help to real people. And I just think that that is so awesome. That is what it's all about, is helping people heal from things. So recovery groups, getting Christian counseling, sitting down with the right people. And I would say, you have to do this with the right people. Because I also know people who have opened up and it has gone south because they went to someone who wasn't mature, someone who wasn't wise. And sometimes they said, well, I'm struggling with this. And the other person said, oh, yeah, that's not a problem. You keep doing that. No, no. That's an issue. Like, we need to heal. And I, I don't know what your issue is, but finding someone to process it with is beautiful. I got one more Bible nerd moment, and then we're going to finish up. It says, verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And he prayed for three days and six months, and it did not rain. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Elijah was the fiery prophet. This dude was passionate. And what the Jewish rabbis would teach about Elijah is if you look really closely, God doesn't tell him to pray for all these things. God doesn't come down and say, Elijah, pray that there be no rain in Israel. Elijah's just so fired up. And he's like, Israel, we're going the wrong direction. You need a wake-up call, so I'm going to pray that God would shut off the rain. And it happened. And what the rabbis teach is that um, Elijah was so fiery and so passionate, he would just go out and do things that the reason he's taken up in the fiery chariot is almost like God says, okay, you did all the good stuff, we're done, you're on the bench now. Like, he's got to go get him. Because he's just so fired up and passionate. Elijah was not the superman. And that's what James is saying here. Sometimes, maybe you've got this concept. You're like, man, if I could find someone with more faith or I could find someone who's got that super special connection with God, they could pray for it and it would happen. Well, maybe. But you can pray about it. You can pursue help. You can talk about it with God. Because ultimately, we are just all normal people that God is moving in our lives. And... And if I'm really honest, I have had an on-again, off-again relationship with prayer. It's been very hot and cold at different times. I have prayer journals at my house um, that I have kept. And one time I, I was in a season where I was trading them out every year. So I'd get a new prayer journal every year. And there are some journals that are just like full of good stuff. Like I was on a hot streak. Like I was praying for stuff and God was answering it and I'm doing like smiley faces and thank you Jesus like all over. And then I've got another journal that only has like a dozen or so entries because that was a tough year. And I was struggling. I was wrestling. And so many times, sometimes my prayer has been the same as the guy who came to Jesus and he said, will you heal my son? And Jesus says, well, I'll heal him if you believe enough. And the guy says, okay, I believe. 
help me believe. Help me believe more. And sometimes that's our prayer. God, help my unbelief. God, help me. God, help me in this moment. And there is something where prayer does matter. Prayer does move. It does stuff. And so I would encourage us, where should our heart go? When the going gets tough, where are we supposed to go? To patience and prayer, which ultimately is us going to God. Where should our heart go when the going gets tough? To patience and prayer, to take it before God. And I do not expect you tomorrow, if something bad happens or there's a struggle for you to just suddenly burst into praise music, right? You got the iPhone going. But can we as a church family start to get 1% better at this? We're maybe 1% faster. We take it to God. 1% faster, our heart goes to the right place about it. Here's just a couple of practical steps. I'll wrap rapid fire. Some of these um, I have done. Some of these I've been encouraged to do. Uh, maybe you need to start a gratitude prayer journal and just writing out the things that you're praying for um, and giving that to God. I had a mentor encourage me to pray and fast one day a week. And I have done that in different seasons of my life and my leadership. I wonder if it's time for that to come back. Maybe you need to mark a spot on your calendar. Just set that, like a prayer meeting with yourself to make sure it happens. Maybe um, you're going to submit a prayer request just through our website or church center app. Like that's a real quick and easy way to do it. And I'll just tell you, just open up the hood a little bit. The way that that works is when we get a prayer request, it goes into a group thread that the elders and the staff, they're the only ones, but they can all see it. And so if you send something to Dallas Church to pray for, like we're doing it that day, in that minute. Once we get it, it's posted, and we're praying for you. And sometimes you even get a little card in the mail that's like, hey, guess what? We prayed for you. Because we want to be a church that does this. We want to be a church where there are elders and spiritual leaders that can pray for you. Maybe your next step is to unload something that's been weighing on you for a while, where you're going to confess something to someone. Find the right person. Maybe you're just going to take a minute and blare the praise music in your car because maybe you got some real good speakers and you got worship album on iTunes. Or maybe it's time for you to repeat a phrase over and over again to be like, I'm going to be patient. God has got this. In this season, instead of whatever story that you're going to be playing or you have been playing in your head for so many years, you're going to say, my, my God, my Father... He's got this. So I encourage us, let's be people of prayer. Let's pray. Father God, I pray you would do something in our lives. God, I pray you would call us to love you, to come back to you, to walk with you. Jesus, help us. Amen.